Hello and welcome to another Perusia podcast. I'm Shabores, your host, and I'm very excited about our guest today. He's no stranger to uh, the Catholic Church. He's written over 40 books on the faith, and uh, his name is the founder of St. Paul Center. He's also a biblical scholar at St. Franciscan University in Steubenville, Ohio, and he's the author of this latest book, Holy is His Name, and he's none other than Dr. Scott Hahn. He joins me live. Hello, uh, Scott Hahn. How are you? Greetings to you, Charvel, dear friend from down under. It's great to see you again. It's great to have you on the, on the show. And you've been busy. I mean, it wasn't that long ago when you released, uh, I remember just talking to you about this book, <laughs> and uh, right. it wasn't that long ago. Um, and uh, I think it's less than, it feels like it's only six months, but here we are talking about another book, uh, Holy is His Name. Um, so congratulations on this. It's a, it's a great it's great work. Thank you. You've... Um, uh, can I touch? I just want to announce before we dive in, we've been excited. Perusia and Emmaus Road have, have partnered in this region and, and we've been printing your books locally. So so those watching, we've got a range of Scott Hahn books now available in Australia, New Zealand, and um, we print them locally, eliminating the shipping. And so it's a lot more affordable now in the local currency. Um, and so you can go to perusiamedia.com for that. But one I'm very excited about is it wasn't long ago you launched this program, the Parousia. The Bible and the Mass, and we've had the book, but we've not had the videos available until now. So we can announce today that the videos are now live on our website at perusiamedia.com, and the Perusia study is available on perusiamedia.com, um, which we're very excited about, the Bible and the Mass, and, uh, and you can rent or um, purchase the digital version of the video or the physical uh, resources as well. So that's all available. So very excited, and thank you for the work you've done Dr. Hahn, with all that, because it's been um, a major part of my personal formation uh, since coming back into the church and discovering your work. It's really impacted my faith and and deepened my relationship with with God, who I was searching for um, so desperately. And and I, I can say thanks to your work, it's helped me find him. <laughs> so thank you. You're welcome. Well, you're most welcome. But also thank you for the great work you're doing, for the gift of your friendship, but also for this collaborative partnership that we do, because you've mentioned the St. Paul Center, but Emmaus Road, as you know, is the publishing arm of the St. Paul Center. And so to have this collaboration with Perusia is just exciting. We are excited. Um, now, for those who don't know much about Emmaus Road, is that a dedicated website for that, or do they go through the St. Paul Center? Where would you point them to? Best thing to do is to go to the St. Paul Center, stpaulcenter.com, and you'll see the link right on, on the top for Emmaus Road, but also Emmaus Academic, which yeah. is the academic publishing arm of the St. Paul Center. Yeah, fantastic, fantastic. I want to um, dive into this book, Holy is His Name. Now, it's, I've read this book. It's, it's, um, it's, quite, a, it's quite a very enjoyable read. Uh, I really enjoy, enjoy and I think it's very uh, interesting, the timing of this book, after everything you've written, this might sound like, okay, we're, we're going back to basics, but as you go into it, it's the profound truth, the reality of what the goal is, what is the end game. Uh, it's all about holiness. How do we become holy? And and what a beautiful timing for this. Can we talk about it? I'd like to announce, I mean, you've got endorsements from everyone in this book, and and uh, we're, we're happy to see our good friend Cardinal George Pell in there as well, uh, endorsing this book. He's a good friend of ours at Perusia, um, the amazing man of, of for the church. Um, but uh, this book, why, why this book and why now? Well, there are a lot of reasons that uh, sort of converge on the decision to work on this particular book. I mean, for one thing, I have just uh, celebrated my 50th anniversary of coming to Christian faith back when I was about 14 years old. And I tell the story in the opening chapter uh, about how I would go to a church and it just seemed so... Uh, saccharine sweet uh the the gospel was portrayed as though it was just um really shallow um and superficial and the love of god was bandied about like you know the same way you might love pizza or something like that and so back in the early 70s i think many people like me <laughs> were were getting over a hippie hangover from the late 60s where the beatles would sing all you need is love you know love 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 woodstock and all of that and the thing was not only cheapened and diluted, but really counterfeited. And so when I was looking for something that was really worth the radical commitment that I was called upon to make, that superficial approach to 
God's word or the gospel just seemed hollow. And so I uh, I started attending a weekly Bible study less than an hour away by uh, a, a man who was relatively young and unknown, but then who became something of a, a, a reformed Protestant theologian celebrity, Dr. R.C. Sproul. And I spent a lot of time over the next few years down at the Ligonier Valley Study Center before he moved that operation down to Florida. Uh, but it had a huge effect on me in 10th grade as a high school kid because he was talking about what would later become his book, The Holiness of God, probably his bestseller and maybe his greatest book. But he was talking all about holiness in a way that was really bracing. It was exactly what I needed, and it was also what I was looking for because, you know, when you look at God, you can see his mercy, his justice, his power, his knowledge, and all of his attributes. But holiness, as he explained, is not just another one of his attributes. Holiness is proper only to God, and it is basically who God is, the Holy Trinity, the Holy Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, he wasn't diving into all of that material back then. But he was basically challenging the superficial gospel. You know, the American Protestant theologian H. Richard Niebuhr once said that in America, the good news is that we have a God without wrath who brought man without sin into a kingdom without judgment. It's just unconditional love, but it's sicky sweet. And so the idea that Isaiah in chapter 6 would have his vision and call from God in the context of what? a vision of the Lord God in heaven. And the seraphim are singing the sanctus, holy, 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 kodesh, kodesh, kodesh. He is the Lord of hosts. He's not love, 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 nor is he power, power, power. But holiness, in a sense, captures who God is from all eternity. The mystery of God is properly described as kodesh, as holy. And the seraphim are so blown away by this holiness that they use their wings to cover their faces while they sing God's praises and the whole earth is shaken down to its very foundations. And Isaiah, the prophet, who is going to have a 50-year career delivering the word of God to the regime, declares, woe is me for I am lost. I'm a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips for my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. And so what does the angel do? Well, he takes this coal from the altar of incense, red hot. But this is the heavenly temple. This is the heavenly altar. This is the presence of the heavenly king. And then he brings it with tongs and touches Isaiah's mouth to it. I mean, talk about a, a third degree burn. And yet the angel declares that this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin forgiven. But the idea, woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of full of people who are unclean. You know, this is relatively shocking. At least it was for me. It was riveting. And what Sproul did was to draw from a work that had been written by a German Protestant, Professor Rudolf Otto, way back in 1917, had written a book that was had a jarring effect upon Germany and then the rest of the world. It was called Das Heilige, translated as The Idea of the Holy by Oxford University Press, and he described the numinous realm of the sacred and how uncomfortable it is, and yet how irresistible it is. And he described this in terms of the mysterium tremendum et fascinans, three Latin words that capture it in a way. It's a mystery, first and foremost, and that it causes us to tremble. Mysterium tremendum et fascinans. It's also enthralling. It's it's irresistible. It is fascinating. And so Moses sees the bush that is burning there in Exodus 3. He he can't look at it, but he, he can't turn away either. And so this is where we hear, take off your shoes for the ground that you, you stand upon is Kodesh. It's holy. And so whether it's Moses or whether it's Isaiah, in the presence of God, even the angels, even the highest choir of the angels, the seraphim, quake and cover themselves, and yet at the same time, they're drawn intractably to this glorious presence from whom they exist and to whom they will go. And it just, I don't know exactly how to describe the effect that it had on me in 10th grade, but this is what I signed up for. This is the kind of God who deserves my all. And at the same time, I could sense 
that this notion of holiness was at the time the solution to a problem, to a crisis that the evangelical Protestant churches were facing even back in the 70s, a kind of shallow, man-centered approach to religion, to worship, to life, you know. And I would say since then, I've also discovered that this is the case in many parts of the Catholic world as well. The clergy and the laity really need a kind of wake-up call like Moses had, like Isaiah had. And even the beloved disciple St. John describes in the opening chapter of the Apocalypse, Charbel, you remember that he turns to see the one who is speaking to him. And when he sees the Son of Man in his heavenly glory, the beloved disciple who reclined on his breast fell at his feet as though dead. You know, and you would almost expect our Lord to say, come on, John, get over yourself. I mean, you reclined on my breast, we're close friends, but it wasn't the case. No, John's response was utterly reasonable. But our Lord's response is, be not afraid. You know, I am the Alpha and the Omega. He's conquered death, and so we can conquer our fears. And and from beginning to end, from the Old Testament to the New, the vision of God's own holiness and the fact that tu salus sanctus, you alone are holy. This is something that, you know, it develops over time in a progressive revelation but it's also something that I didn't really grasp back then. I mean, the notion and the um, the trauma of encountering the all-holy God, that was enough to really get me started to read Holy Scripture, to recognize the need to be holy. Hebrews 12, 14, strive for holiness, for without it no one will see God. Okay, likewise, 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 3, this is the will of God for you, namely your holiness, your sanctification. Now, if anybody had said back then, this is the will of God for me, I would have braced, okay, wait a minute, I, I got to take notes here. What will my college major be? What will my career be? Who will I marry? You know, what is the will of God in terms of what parking space will I find? But for Paul, you know, it isn't the case that we're robots or puppets on a string, and so we've just got to decode this mysterious thing called God's will. No, God gives us, as his sons and daughters, a tremendous freedom and the power of the Holy Spirit, and at the same time, he gives us not ten goals or five, but one, and that is holiness. Without it, you will never see my face, so strive for it, and when you see it that way, you'll understand that this is my will for you. It isn't to kind of control your life from every moment to the next. It really is to call you on to something that is so beyond you. It is so proper to God alone. It's only, If God alone is holy, then God alone will hallow us. He alone can sanctify us. And so I, I, I must admit that high school experience was enough to get me reading scripture, but it was only after years of research that I began to realize that we're still kind of skimming the surface, that there's a whole lot more that goes on through salvation history with the call to be holy, much, much more than I ever realized. Yeah, wow, beautiful. I, I do love, yeah, that opening chapter, uh, you, you set the scene with what you were just saying there, the whole, the whole culture at the time, you know, in the 70s and the Beatles and yeah, coming off from the 60s, and then this all sort of man-centered approach to God, God coming down to us, which he has, but but then we focused so much on the, I guess, on the human side, and not enough on the divine. <laughs> so this holy, the separate, he's set apart from us, I mean, it's something so grand. Um, you do talk about in another chapter, the genesis of holiness, which you've touched on uh, a little bit there, Isaiah, but it goes way back in Genesis, right? So yes. could we touch on, I guess, yeah. the genesis of this um, this is what you're this talking about. This, in some ways, was the most uh, significant discovery in my research going back about 25 or 30 years. It was shortly after becoming a Catholic that I started to find things that had been hiding in plain view that I should have noticed, but I didn't, and my teachers didn't either. So Genesis is 50 chapters long. Yeah. But the notion of Kodesh, holiness, only occurs once in all 50 chapters, and it occurs near the very beginning in Genesis 2, so you have in Genesis 2, verse 3, God having created all creatures in six days, then rested on the seventh day, and he hallowed it, he sanctified it, he consecrated it. That is the single occurrence of holiness in all of Genesis. Well, what does it mean? Well, four verses later in Genesis 2, verse 7, we read about how God formed man from the dust 
and then breathe into him, the his nostrils, the breath of life. Nishmat Hayim. The very breath that he breathed, the first breath that he breathed was, was not just air, it was the breath of God. It was the Holy Spirit. It was what theologians call sanctifying grace. And this is how man became a living being, a nishmat hayim, and then a, a nefesh, as it were. And so when you look just 10 verses later in Genesis 2, verse 17, the Lord God invites our first father to partake of the fruit of all of the trees in the garden paradise, except for one, the forbidden fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And then he attaches that warning, the day you eat of it, you'll surely die. Well, when you turn the page in the next chapter, our first parents fall by eating the forbidden fruit. But what happens next is not that they drop dead. You know, their eyes are open to guilt, to nakedness, to shame, and they run, they hide, and all of that. But the Lord God could have said, the day you eat of it, you'll deserve to die, you'll be sentenced to die, you'll begin to die. But it's just so straightforward. The day you eat of it, you'll surely die. So when the serpent says you won't, you have to wonder, well, wait a minute. Was he issuing an idle threat or was the serpent seeing through it? No, there's life that's associated with our physical body or human nature and breath, oxygen. But then there is life that is divine and eternal and truly supernatural that is associated with the breath of God, the Holy Spirit. And so the symbol of the seventh day is, of course, the Sabbath. The Sabbath is the sign of the covenant. The covenant is more than a contractual bond or an exchange of property. The covenant is a bond that establishes kinship between the Lord God and man through the breath of God's spirit, through the spirit of divine sonship. And so if there is life that is physical, that would be vulnerable to cancer, to a bullet to the brain. But this life that is divine is also vulnerable, but not to any physical illness or injury. No, the only way you can snuff off the life of God and the soul, as you know, from 1 John 5, 16, is to commit a mortal sin. And the term for mortal there in the Greek is thanatos, the same term used in Genesis 2, 17. So the day they ate, they committed a mortal sin. They snuffed out the life of God and their soul. They committed a sort of spiritual suicide or what the catechism calls the death of the soul. As the soul is the form of the body, and when the soul and the body are separated, that's physical death. But the Holy Spirit became the form, the soul of his soul, the form of his soul. And when you commit mortal sin, you basically force out, you evict this divine guest of the Holy Spirit. And so original sin is what they committed. The catastrophic effects are not just disobedience, but death. And likewise, not just physical death, but a spiritual death, whereby you lose the life of God, that's far deeper kind of death, that's darker, that is not a metaphor, but a reality that though it is a mystery, brings about what we call original sin as we contract it. We are born from our parents with human nature, but we're born spiritually dead, physically and naturally alive, but even if your parents happen to be canonizable saints, you still need to be baptized, and as Paul describes original sin in Romans 5, he describes baptism in Romans 6 as nothing less than dying and rising with Christ. So in effect, we are resurrected through the waters of baptism more than Lazarus was resurrected after four days because he just got his natural life back. We get a supernatural life back that is divine and eternal. And yet it's so undervalued. It's so underrated. You know, it's so much more valuable than natural life, but it's also much more vulnerable. And so when you read the rest of Genesis and you notice that holiness never occurs another time, on the one hand, you begin to sense that the Lord is trying to convey what catastrophic results there are as a result of our first father committing this mortal sin. On the other hand, you begin to get a sense that people like Noah and Abraham are described as righteous and they have justice, but mishpat and zadik, these are Hebrew terms righteous and just, that are not the same thing as holiness. And this, again, is something that I hadn't noticed before. Righteousness and holiness are, for most Christians, practically synonymous, interchangeable terms. And what, I've can't, what, what, what I came to discover was that they are distinct. They're inseparably connected. But on the other hand, they are clearly distinct. For example, in Isaiah 6, we read that in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon the throne, high and lifted up, and they're singing 
holy, holy, holy. Well, what is the year that King Uzziah died? Well, we read about it in Second Chronicles 26, because Uzziah reigned for decades, and he made Israel great again, like a, you know, a good ruler does. And he became puffed up with pride. And so the king decided to leave the palace one day and go to the temple, which is the province of the priests. And so when he enters the temple, he keeps going beyond the boundary where lay people are allowed. And he strolls all the way up to the altar of incense with Azariah and 80 other priests warning him no farther. But he keeps going until finally he has overstepped the bounds of the king who rules in righteousness. He has intruded into the office of the priest who administers holiness. And suddenly the priests see on his forehead there is uncleanness, literally leprosy. So they drag him out and they don't just take him home to the palace. They probably ended up making a, a kind of a makeshift leper colony for the king because he died shortly thereafter. So when Isaiah says, I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell in, a, in the midst of a people of uncleanness, there really is a sense in which you have Uzziah, the king who administers righteousness and justice, intruding and stepping over the line of holiness in the temple, which is the jurisdiction of the priest. And there you begin to get a clear sense that there is a difference between righteousness and holiness, between justice and sanctity. And so Noah and Abraham can be described as upright, as truly righteous, but that doesn't mean that they've attained holiness yet. They haven't overcome the catastrophe that we call original sin. And so you'll recall that the next chapter I developed this thing called the uh, the holiness explosion in Exodus, because if it only occurs once in Genesis, it occurs nearly a hundred times in Exodus. That's only 40 chapters long, and yet 98 times that word holiness occurs more than almost any other, because that's what the book is about. The ground that you're standing on is holy. And then likewise, if you hear my voice and you keep my covenant, you will be a holy nation. Well, they don't hear God's voice. They only hear thunder. They don't keep the covenant. They worship the golden calf. And so while you have the holy tabernacle, the holy altar, the holy vestments, the holy sacrifices, Israel has not yet become a holy nation. And nobody in Israel at that point is referred to as a saint. And by the time you move out of Exodus after the golden calf and the Levites replacing the firstborns, as you know, Charbel, Leviticus is almost only about holiness. The holiness code that runs from chapter 17 all the way to the end of the book in chapter 27. Be holy for the Lord your God is holy. Leviticus 19, 2. Over and over again. But what's really the subtext, what's implied is be holy for a change. Because up until now, you've been everything but. And so be holy. Don't be desecrated. Don't be disobedient. Don't be so distrusting. But even through the Levitical priesthood and the book of Leviticus, it doesn't happen. It doesn't take, you know. And so you continue reading, looking for holiness, and you see it everywhere on everything, but no one person is ever referred to as a saint. And as I mentioned in the book, it took me an Orthodox, you know, uh, it took a friend who's a Jewish rabbi, uh, Joshua Berman, to point out in his book on the temple that in contrast to the New Testament, nobody's ever referred to in the Hebrew Bible as a saint. I remember reading that thinking like, oh, no, 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 you, you, must be, you must be misreading or misunderstanding. And I would look at the English translations that sometimes get rendered as saint, and I realized, no, there are weaker Hebrew terms that don't really translate that way. Rabbi Berman was right as rain. I mean, it was a kind of laser precision strike and an insight. And so... You continually hear how God is calling us to holiness. We achieve a certain righteousness, but what's the difference? What's the big idea, you know? So, again, on the one hand, you begin to realize that holiness is proper to God, but it's only something that we can participate in to the extent that we belong to him. If it's properly his, that we've got to make ourselves his property, which we already are, in truth, but we don't act that way. We don't think that way. We don't make choices that way. So when you look at the covenant and you look at the law of the covenant, you see the Ten Commandments divided up into two tables. The first table, commandments one to three, and the second table, commandments four to seven, four to ten. And those last seven commandments deal with righteousness. That is, 
sort of the horizontal realm of human relations. So you honor your father and mother, you don't kill, and so on. Whereas the first three represent sort of the, the vertical axis, where you have no other gods before me. You don't take my name in vain. And you remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Oh. The only time holiness occurs in the Ten Commandments, and it occurs there twice, because it's recognizing that you have justice. You ought to give to others what you owe them. But you'll never be able to repay the Lord. So what is the proper response? What is the most reasonable response to the Lord God giving you life, to the Lord God bringing you back to him for judgment? We've got to be consecrated. We've got to be sanctified. We've got to make ourselves fully and truly his property. And so holiness is not reducible to our experience of it, or Moses at the burning bush or Isaiah's. Holiness belongs properly to God. And when we experience it, it is truly a trauma but our traumatic experience is not the definition of holiness, nor is righteousness the same as holiness. You can make yourself a good citizen of Israel, but you can't make yourself a saint. And this is what took Israel forever to learn, just like it takes us, practically speaking, forever to learn as well. So becoming holy is not something that ever really happens in the Old Testament. And it's like, really? It never ceases to be the only thing for which we were made, but it's the only thing for which we get from Christ alone. And so in Luke and elsewhere, you hear the Holy Spirit shall come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the child that will be born to you will be called holy, but also the very fact that the Blessed Virgin Mary is overshadowed by the Spirit makes her the Holy Virgin. So there's a new covenant, a new Adam, but a new Eve Practically speaking, there's a new creation that's unfolding in Nuce in a, in, a, in a very subtle, practically invisible way. But what a difference this makes when you recognize that the incarnation is the hinge of human history. It's the hinge by which we turn from the old to the new. And of course, once you say it, then we see it. But not until you say it, you know, and then you recognize the fact that, wait a minute, in the Old Testament, I did discover would seem to be an exception to what Rabbi Berman had said. Because one place you find in Daniel chapter 7, there are people who are referred to as saints. And so if you look closely, you can see why. Because in Daniel 7 verse 13, there is one like the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven, and he's presented before the Ancient of Days. And to him is given this worldwide kingdom that is everlasting, but then in the second half of Daniel's oracle there in chapter 7, the Son of Man turns around and entrusts this everlasting kingdom to whom? To the saints of the Most High, close quote. So there are people identified as saints in the Hebrew Bible, but wait, they're pointing into the future. It's an oracle from a prophet. So only when the Son of God becomes the Son of Man and he comes down to earth to live, to die, to rise— and to ascend on the cloud of glory to the Ancient of Days, the Father, then suddenly the Son of Man gets what was always his, the divine kingdom, the kingdom of heaven, but he gets it for the purpose of giving it to the saints of the Most High, who still have to face great persecution, suffering, and endurance in order to secure that. But to me, this is the exception that proved the rule, that nobody in the Old Testament is ever truly described as a saint and yet, when the new covenant comes, it doesn't replace the old. It fulfills it, obviously. But in Matthew 27, you discover that when Jesus is raised from the dead, there in verses 51 and 52, Matthew alone notices something really odd. And that is, after Easter Sunday and for the next few weeks, all of these tombs of all of these Old Testament righteous people who were dead, they come out of the tombs and they're seen by witnesses until they're not, until they're gone. And so what happened then? Well, he ascends into heaven as the Son of Man, and he takes the saints of the Most High up. So when he descended into Hades, he really goes down to the souls of the faithful departed of the Old Testament to deliver them. And when he ascends into heaven, it isn't a solo flight. It really is something that he does for us, for them, especially in the Old Testament, Isaiah's vision of the Sanctus, holy, 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 shows us heaven as populated exclusively by angels. 
the seraphim, the cherubim, all the way down to the archangel, the angels. But what difference the ascension makes is seen in the visions of John in the apocalypse, because in Revelation 4, verse 8, the only other time we hear the sanctus, the trishagion, holy, 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 who's singing it? The angels, but the saints, the martyrs, the 144,000, all of these humans alongside of angels indicates what difference it makes, because in effect, the incarnation, the paschal mystery, his death, resurrection, and ascension basically brought about nothing less than the repopulation of heaven. So you end up finding the saints entering into glory and participating in this heavenly liturgy by which their prayers release so much energy, more than anything in the Old Testament, for us to enter into communion with them because, well, I believe in God the Father Almighty, in Jesus Christ, his only Son. I believe in the Holy Spirit, and therefore he can believe in the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, and one holy Catholic Church. And, you know, it's like, well, this was always right in front of us. But I don't think we ever appreciated it until you kind of blow off the dust and you recognize, okay, an acorn is just a little thing. You know, the sapling that it grows into isn't much. But when you get to Christ, when you get to the the new covenant, you begin to see something towering even more than an oak tree. And this is who we are as Catholics. This is what we profess because this is what we possess. So that when Paul is addressing these relatively young, immature Christians in the city of debauchery, Corinth, he doesn't just call the Corinthians to be saints. He calls them saints. And why? 6.11, you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified. You know, and I think alarms ought to be going off blaringly loud, like, wait a minute, how is that even possible? Instead, what it evokes, it kind of like we're yawning. We're like, of course, you know, it's the same old, same old. We have these filters in place. We don't recognize the, the theodramatic uh, I hate to use the word progressive because that has been hijacked and sort of misappropriated by so many politicians. But there really is a progressive sense of divine revelation whereby we are ushered into something that Second Peter describes as being made partakers of the divine nature. And so in the Old Testament, you could be forgiven, you could be healed, you could keep the commandments, you could be a good citizen, you could achieve a degree of righteousness but the only thing you couldn't do is the only thing for which you were made to be, and that is holy, to become a saint. And so for us to see that, I think, is sort of like, wow, okay. Then the communion of saints, along with the seven sacraments, and this is what we focus on a whole lot in our study and in this book. I focus on how the sacraments in the new covenant are different than the sacraments of the old. You have sacraments in the old covenant. You have Passover. You have circumcision. You have the feast, the animal sacrifices, the priesthood of Aaron, all the rest. But the sacraments of the new covenant, as Augustine would say, are fewer than they were in the old. They're also easier. Compare baptism to circumcision. But they're also intrinsically powerful and not merely symbolic or prophetic signs. And so I, I realize, Charbel, it's always the case that when you and I get started you know, I, I just come out like a fire hydrant. But this, for me, represents the culmination of 50 years of studying Scripture and discovering the sacraments. And they don't make holiness automatic, much less easy, but they make holiness possible in a way that in the Old Testament they didn't really appreciate. I mean, Jesus once said that John the Baptist is the greatest man to have been born of woman, but that the least in the kingdom of heaven will be greater than John the Baptist. And you're like, no, 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 come on. That's just hyperbole. You're overstating things for dramatic effect. But what if he wasn't? And he's not. And so we've got to take stock on how high the stakes are, that is to be made holy, but at the same time, how great the risks are. Because if you break the natural law, if you break the Mosaic law, you know, there's going to be punishment. But if you spurn the blood of the new covenant, if you spurn the beloved son of God, you know, he makes holiness possible in a way that nothing ever could before. But he also is going to make it possible for Western civilization to not only become post-Christian, but anti-Christian and embrace a form of desecration and a form of apostasy, where you could almost say that Western civilization could not exist as it now is 
apart from the revelation of holiness in Christ, the Holy Spirit, the communion of saints, when you turn your back on that, you don't just kind of walk away. You know, just as we in the Catholic tradition speak of the three stages or the three ages of the interior life, from the beginner to the proficient to those who have been perfected. So you could almost describe the three ages of the unnatural, the anti-supernatural life. When Paul describes it in Romans 1, 24, 26, and 28, he gave them up to impurity. Then he gave them up to unnatural and perverse relations. Then he gave them up to a malice and a form of injustice where they not only celebrate the injustice of others, they also disapprove of those who would call it injustice. And I think that's either where we are or what it's what we're getting close to. And, you know, again, the gift of holiness sheds so much light upon our lives, but it also sheds a kind of shadow light upon the world that we live in because of how much we have spurned. Yes. Wow. Wow. I mean, this is, there's so much in everything you just said there. And that's why the book is very important for people to unpack it all. Oh. But the importance of where it started and the, the way you, you started there with the mentioned one Kadesh back in Genesis. Um, and we lost that, that original sin. We, 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 we say it and we sort of gloss over it, but you've just really articulated how big of a deal that is, you know, when we are rejecting the one who is holy and the one who, who is the only holy one, but then how he could love us so much to be, allow us to even share in, a, in, in that holiness. And then we lose it. And then this whole salvation history, this whole Old Testament is us trying to get back, but we always fall short because he's really not here until Christ himself, the holy one comes down. And then our lady is an interesting uh, participant here in the, the Magnificat sort of she re, she even reaffirms the holy is his name but she even she even uh, re, um, acknowledges how blessed is she be blessed among women um, because of what she's participated in That's so right. now the New Testament's here you talk about here I mean not the kingdom not holy holy and then holiness in the prophets holiness in person holy be, holy become God and then the body of holiness there's all these these chapters now that you lead up to the priesthood and then Hebrews. Can we touch on this? I mean, just, I guess, sweeping here, but we're now in the New Testament leading up to the priesthood. And I do want to finish. I, don't, I want to leave time for the end because the last chapter is very important uh, for us to, to take home with. But but just leading up this next bit, uh, um, the pre, all those things, the body, holiness of the body, holiness of the priesthood, holy, all of that. Could you talk about all sure. that? Let's, let's unpack it together, you know. Building on what I was saying before, you know, to be made partakers of the divine nature mm. is the only way to achieve holiness. You know, it's one thing to have human nature rectified, which our Lord alone can do for us. Mm. And you see it, of course, embodied in the Blessed Virgin Mary. But grace does not just heal nature of the effects of sin. Grace does not just perfect human nature and make us more fully and truly human. Grace elevates human nature so that salvation is not just the forgiveness, it's not just the healing, it's not just the education, it is nothing less than what the fathers called theosis, theopoesis, divinization, deification, no way, we're not gods, no, but he assumes our nature precisely for the purpose of communicating his nature, and so even if it is by grace, through participation in the Holy Spirit, in the communion of saints, this is really and truly what we were made for. It's not plan B, much less C or D. We were made to become children of God, what we were made to discover that we can't do it ourselves. And so going all the way back to the beginning of the Old Testament, we can almost get a sense of what we discover in the New that God created all things in six days. It's not telling us how much clock time it took for God to make it, but he's, he's basically showing how the seventh day, the Sabbath, and in Hebrew, as you know, Charbel, to seven yourself is the same expression as to swear a covenant. So God is binding himself to creation in general, to those creatures who bear his image and likeness, so that we can become not just contractual employees, but covenantal offspring. But so we work for six days because in six days we can work hard, we can keep the commandments, we can obey, we could be righteous. But what we do in work is ordered to worship. What we do in our labor is ordered to liturgy. And so remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. What do you do? Well, you build big churches, you build beautiful altars and lots of beautiful vestments. And No, 
the way the commandment is expressed is do not labor. Cease from all your labor. You, your children, your manservants, your maidservants, everyone, even the sojourners in your gates. Why? Because there are some things that you can do in imitating me for six days. But there is one thing that I alone can do. And the way I'm going to do it is by calling you to cease from your labor. So you won't be tempted to take any credit for becoming holy. So on the seventh day, God is going to do a work that is not a creative work by the Lord God, our creator. It's going to be a paternal work as the Lord God wants to be our father. So in John 5, when Jesus heals the man who had been by the poolside for 38 years, he does so on the Sabbath, infuriating his opponents. Why did he do it? Jesus says, because my father's working still. And it's like, wait a minute. This is why they sought all the more to kill him, because he not only broke the Sabbath, but he called God his father, thus making himself equal to God. You know, why would Jesus so unnecessarily provoke his opponents? Well, because there are works of God that are creative, six days, but there is a work of God that is truly a fatherly work. You could come and work for me, and I've got a lot of chores around the house. I'd pay you well, Sharpel, I promise, but I wouldn't adopt you. You can't work your way into my family anymore than I could work my way into your family. So we have to work, but ultimately we have to rest, because what we we're going to say is the only thing for which we we're made to become holy, to become a saint, is what is God's work alone. He alone is holy, so he alone hallows, and the only way we can prove that is by ceasing from all of the things that we could take credit for and say, God, I'm going to be consecrating this day, not just this hour we call Mass, but I want to contemplate you. I want to rest in your presence through prayer. I don't want to activate anything because I can't activate the only thing that I pray that you will actualize in me, and that is holiness. You know, and it reminds me of the definition that I found in the catechism. I put it at the beginning of the book, paragraph 2809, the holiness of God is the inaccessible center of his eternal mystery. So it's not the fact that God is sovereign, because that means he's re related to the creation over which he governs us. No, the holiness of God is the inaccessible center of his eternal mystery. It's off limits. It's inaccessible. It's like the holy of holies, which even the high priest of Israel could not enter anytime he wanted, but only briefly on the day of atonement. The last part of that is what is revealed of God's holiness in creation and history. That's what scripture calls glory, the radiance of his majesty. But to actually enter into the inner life of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you can't do that, nor can I. But what our limitations are, God doesn't have. So we can't scale the heights of heaven, but he can stoop down to us in our own mortality and our misery and transform human nature into that which is partaking of the divine. Divinization, that's the Catholic gospel. You know, if the if the peak of Mount Everest is covered in clouds, I would say the peak of the Catholic gospel is covered up from most people's view. And that is divinization, deification. And it isn't like, well, we've got to scale the heights of the Himalayas. No, what we've got to do is basically prostrate ourselves rest in his presence and say, God, I, I've done what I can do, but now the principle of the Sabbath, the principle of the covenant, the mystery of holiness is I've got to come to grips with what I can't do. I can't make myself holy. So in order to express that I'm not going to do anything but enter into your presence, your Eucharistic presence, and ask you to finish what you've begun— righteousness, holiness, six days, seven, the seven last commandments, the first three— and so holiness is not about getting bigger and better and smarter and stronger. It really is all about getting smaller and closer to our Lord, like Our Lady or like John the Baptist. He must increase. I must decrease. Mm -hmm. And so creating that space for the Holy Spirit to come in, that is the single most important thing we can do, but it's not our doing even then. It's what we do when we stop doing the things that we can take credit for. And, and what does that look like? Well, Jesus shows us that the school of holiness is really the school of suffering. And so in Romans 8, you find Holy Spirit mentioned, I think, 18 times, which is all of the more than the previous seven chapters put together, and then some. And it's all about how we are holy and glorified I think it's Romans 8, 17, provided we suffer with him in order for us to be glorified with him. 
And so what difference does suffering make? Well, Jesus turned suffering into the instrument of our redemption. And so when we suffer, we think, well, that separates us from Christ. No, our suffering is what conforms us to Christ. So the Holy Spirit empowers us to do certain things every day, to do work and to sanctify our labor through prayer, but then to also endure the kind of suffering that is theosis, divinization, through kenosis, through suffering, through self-emptying. So he didn't do it so we wouldn't have to. He did it to enable us to do what we could never do apart from him or the Holy Spirit. And so I would say the path to sanctity is not a how to do it type of thing. It's how to let him do it. You let go, you let God, and then he can take up the slack. But I would say this, that the saints in heaven might be unknown to the inhabitants of earth. The vast majority are not canonized by the Vatican. Yeah. But that's the way it ought to be, because holiness is not some conspicuous, empirical thing. Oh, look at their glow, their aura. No, holiness is something hidden, like the inaccessible center of the temple, the Holy of Holies. And so it really isn't about being some glitzy Catholic celebrity teacher like, you know, I'm called to be at times. That is so risky, as James reminds us. But the fact is, you know, somebody who just sweeps the street is called to be holy. But especially the priests and the consecrated, you know, but even then we recognize in the parable of the, the five wise and the five foolish virgins, you could be consecrated in your virginity and still end up foolish. You could be consecrated in the middle of the world and set aside time through prayer and also accept the sufferings that come your way, the unfair treatment, the illnesses, the injuries, and all of these things, at the end of the day, you discover, wait a minute, God sanctifies us like a sculptor who uses the chisel of suffering to kind of hammer away all of our hardness and all, all of our rough edges. So those who enter heaven and see the face of God are simply those who graduate from the school of suffering. Whereas the people who are smarter and stronger or whatever more they have, if they succumb to pride like we all tend to do and they end up in hell, they only have themselves to blame. But ultimately, it's because they dropped out of this one school of holiness called the school of suffering. Fantastic. I mean, yes, this is the point uh, of this whole book is how awesome God is. I mean, how awesome, you know, we, we, and through the whole Old Testament and even Jesus revealing how awesome God the Father is, the Trinity, and how set apart we are, yet how he's infinite, he's got no beginning, no end, we have a beginning, we are finite, but he comes down and to div divinize us. And so as, as Catholics, what an awesome thing we can be uh, participating in to be brought up. The Eucharist, as you say, there is that moment where we can be one with, with, with Christ himself, the Holy One, and be a tabernacle, a holy of holies, in a sense. And what an honor. Um, and we've got to not take that for granted. I think uh, what this book does is remind us that we, we, are, we are not worthy and we can't earn our way to heaven. However, if we let God come into our lives and he will take over, then it's him that will help us. That pretty much right. does it. The credit's to him. But it's, it's different. I just don't want to fall in a trap where you might have this um, debate this is where many Protestants and Catholics sort of really hone in on this works and, and faith argument or, or predestination. You know, the idea really is it's, we still have something to do, and it leads us in the last chapter. Um, the last chapter talks about a, a, like a way of life. You yes. talk about how do we go on. Can we unpack that as, a, as sort of practical tools now? What could we do to be holy? How do we become holy and you, you sort of unpack it a bit with this idea of a way of life um, in, in the way we live day to day. And it's not sort of overnight. It's something we work at, something we chip away. Can you um, touch on this? Because we've got to rediscover how, uh, how we can actually attain this. It's not on our own doing, but it is God. But yeah, you, you practically sort of lay it out in the last chapter. Right. So I do. So I try to do. Um, yeah. I'm trying to lay it out in my last stage of life as well. Yeah. Um, I have to apologize to you and to our viewers because we didn't get to two of the chapters that I suspect you probably wanted to talk about. So let me just gesture towards the one yes. chapter that uh, focuses on Isaiah seeing the Lord high and lifted up. That, that verb in Hebrew and in Greek 
that occurs again at the beginning of the suffering servant oracle in Isaiah 52, 13, going into Isaiah 53, you know, like a lamb led before its slaughter, you know, you know, all of this thing that pertains to Christ's suffering. When John, the evangelist, in chapter 12, speaks of the Son of Man coming to be glorified, unless a grain of wheat falls to the earth and dies, and when the Son of Man is lifted up, he'll draw all men to himself and cast out the evil one, the prince of this world. But then John adds, he said this to show by what? Resurrection he was to rise, what ascension he was to ascend. No, to show by what death he was to die. And so the cross is precisely where the holiness of God's love is not concealed by an angry father who's just taking it out on his son. No, the holy love of God is imaged by the son, not losing his life, and not bearing the brunt of wrath, but manifesting a love that is divine, a love that is life-giving. And so John ends up saying that Isaiah saw his glory, Isaiah beheld his glory, and that suddenly indicates that the vision of God, the holy, holy, holy one in Isaiah 6, and the vision of the servant who suffers and gives up his life in Isaiah 52, 13, all the way to Isaiah 53, 12, this is not just some opaque image. This was a vision that God gave to Isaiah of how the Lord is not only the king, but the priest and the victim, the son, the servant, the one who through suffering divinizes those who could never be anything more than creaturely servants of the Almighty. And it's like, are our brains exploding yet? You know, well, if not, then perhaps the next chapter, because the next chapter is my personal favorite, where I look at the book of Hebrews, which talks about Jesus as the priest. No other book of the New Testament identifies Jesus as the priest. It's implied in certain places, but it's only explicit in Hebrews, and it's the central theme. Jesus is priest, the high priest, the royal high priest after the order of Melchizedek. So priesthood, sacrifice, altar, tabernacle, temple, you know, more holiness in Hebrews than practically everywhere else put together. And so what is the subtext? What is the unspoken assumption? What is the hidden premise of Hebrews? Wait for it. It's the Eucharist. You know, the word isn't used, but then the word doesn't occur until the second, the last two decades of the first century, really. So what did Jesus call the Eucharist? Well, he called it my body. He called it his blood. He called it covenant. He called it new covenant. He called it the blood of the new covenant. And so when you recognize the words, the phrases, the images that are shot through Hebrews, which uses the word covenant more than the rest of the New Testament put together, it uses the word new covenant twice as much as the rest of the New Testament. And it's all about Jesus, not only as the high priest, but the true tabernacle and the sacrifice. Well, where do we experience that on earth as it is in heaven? In the Eucharist, the thing that he called the new covenant. And so that chapter, we don't have the time to do it justice, but I, I will do it briefly, and even if that's an injustice. But I want to invite not only our beginners, but also our intermediates, you know, uh, and the advanced, because that in some ways distills what took me 600 pages to show in my book, Kinship by Covenant, my doctoral dissertation that ended up getting published by Yale University Press. But we got to come to the end. I realize that we got to get down to the practical. And so we got to get to the last chapter, holiness today. And here again, you know, I talk about how holiness is not some conspicuous performance that we do in order for other people to kind of applaud us. No, holiness really has more to do with the diapers that are changed on the changing table, the kind of work that nobody notices, the kind of prayer that is not public or upfront, the kind of thing that the saints exhibit, but especially St. Jose Maria uh, or St. Therese, you know, he has the book, The Way. She developed The Little Way, doing little things with a lot of love. There's a, there's a splendor in the ordinary. Extraordinary grace comes through ordinary work when it's properly consecrated by the morning offering, by punctuating your day in prayer, by the rosary, by holy mass, by the things that we do once a week, mass, the things that we do once a month, you know, uh, get away from evening or recollection or whatever. But ultimately, it's how we open ourselves to a power that is utterly beyond us, the Holy Spirit, who wants to possess us. You know, we think of evil spirits and demonic possession. Well, that's a counterfeit. What we really want is the mystery where the Holy Spirit 
possesses my soul, the Holy Spirit becomes the soul of my soul, like the Holy Spirit became the soul of the Blessed Virgin Mary's soul. She becomes something of an icon of the Holy Spirit. This is anything but glitzy. It isn't glamorous. And I would say the sacraments are sort of the rungs in the ladder by which we ascend, but only because it was lowered from heaven, just like Jacob's ladder in Genesis is shown. And so holiness is put on display in the old covenant through wind, through fire, through earthquakes. But it's a curious thing that when Elijah gets back to the mountain of Moses in 1 Kings 19, you know, the Lord has basically indicated, I want to reveal myself to you. And so the mighty wind comes and it splits the rocks just like it, it parted the Red Sea, but the Lord isn't in it. Okay. Then a fire comes. Oh, wow. Just like the pillar of fire that led Israel through the wilderness, but the Lord isn't in it. You know, then there's an earthquake as well, just like atop Mount Sinai, but the Lord wasn't in that. Okay. Wait for it. There's a still small voice. And what does Elijah do? He covers his face with his cloak. Because the Lord was speaking in a still, small voice. As you see history progressing in Scripture, as I experience my own spiritual life progressing through the through the decades, I just turned 65 a, a few weeks ago, Happy I begin birthday. to get a sense that a still, small voice is where the Lord wants to be found. The still, small voice is precisely where the Lord is in my life. I dedicated the book to my son, Father Jeremiah, who became a priest a year and a half ago because we all heard a still small voice. And that was the priest gently saying, you are a priest after the order of Melchizedek, gently smearing his hands with oil. And the next day at his first mass, we heard his still small voice speaking the words of consecration. This was more than religious rhetoric. He didn't speak in a booming voice. He wasn't out to impress anybody. He was simply a consecrated instrument. The Holy High Priest in heaven uses the Holy Spirit to equip mortal men to be holy priests now, to bring about the Holy Eucharist, to also bring about the Holy Resurrection that comes in confession when you confess every known mortal sin. There is a resurrection that is holier than what Lazarus got. And so it's like, Wow. I mean, if you think about it, the Catholic faith is so filled with amazing truth, amazing grace. It's amazing how unamazed we are. I mean, it's it's almost it's almost the case that it's too good to be true, unless, of course, it is the truth and nothing but the gospel truth. But I mean, these sacraments, especially the Eucharist, it's far more unbelievable than we allow ourselves to believe. And so it's like, Lord, forgive us for taking so much grace for granted and help us to spend the rest of our lives making up for lost time, but not by activism, you know, or what Pope Leo XIII called Americanism, where we've got to do, 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 and as a result, we'll build the kingdom of heaven on earth. No, you know, if the king reigns from the wood of the cross, if Isaiah had a vision of the Lord lifted up on the cross, then Augustine was right. Jesus Christ is enthroned upon the wood of the cross. And that is the way we're going to be sanctified and made royal priests. It is precisely through suffering where we say, Lord, I don't like this, but I love you enough to lay this upon the altar and ask you to make up for my weakness, to give me your strength for your more, to take my less and to make me what you alone can do. Make me a saint. Transubstantiating bread and wine ain't nothing compared to transforming sinners like me into saints. Psalm 115, not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name be all the glory. Amen, amen, and amen. As we close, uh, Dr. Hanna, I thank you for your time. Uh, is it just a, a, a final, do we know if we are more holier one day than the next? Is there something that we can know uh, if we're doing, because you, know, you can have people going to Mass every day, they can go to confession regularly, they can pray the rosaries every day, but there could be a difference between between uh, between us in holiness. How do we, when we grow, is it is it in is it something all with our intentions? What, what is it? Do we know? Do we have some sort of, I guess, assertion or confirmation that we are growing in holiness? Well, you know, there's no meter, and so yeah. there's no metric. <laughs> you know, like I said, I, I I produced how many books in the last three years? That's not the way we measure holiness. <laughs> it's also not the opinions of other people. You know, it's like, oh, you are so holy. Uh-huh. And you're the Lord God, and this is my last day, judgment day? No. And this is the mystery of the Holy Spirit. He blows where he wills. He, we don't know where he comes from. We don't know where he goes. 
but he alone makes us holy. And so there is a sense in which holiness is closely bound up with humility. And, and so I would say that when you read the lives of the saints and they become holier and holier, the proof of that in part is that they become aware of how unholy they are mm-hmm. and more and more aware of how unholy they are. And so, you know, if you ever win, like the prize for being the most humble, don't put it out for others to see, you know. And so, likewise, if you want to take your own spiritual temperature in order to determine how holy am I, you're going about it the wrong way. And and so, I would say, Lord, you alone are holy. You alone can make me holy. You are showing me how unholy I am. But you can complete this work that you've begun. And so what I don't want is more and more of my own sense of holiness. What I should want is more and more of a sense of the Holy One of Israel, the Holy One who is Christ, and the saints as well. So it's to the extent that you get your eyes off yourself and your own lack of holiness or not, and you focus on the one who alone can make you holy, and it's almost as it's like a a positive byproduct. You can strive to be righteous, and you can strive to be holy, but only in a sense of kind of vacating it. So you go to Mass, but you don't check your cell phone. You go to work, but you also pray, and you set aside time to examine your conscience, to consecrate, to have the Angelus at noon, to say grace before meals, even with your pagans at the restaurant. And so by punctuating work time with that kind of holiness— There's a way in which the transformation will be, will always be invisible, but it can end up becoming more substantial. The soul is not seen. The body is. The body is a sacrament of the soul. There is a sense in which holiness is always going to remain invisible to others and even to ourselves. So we strive for it by striving for God. Amen. Thank you. Thank you. And what a special, um, what a special moment to hear your son who called you father. And now you can call him Father. And and it's all thanks to God the Father. I mean, my goodness, just just reflect on that for a moment. But that must be so Holy special. orders, Holy Eucharist, you know, <laughs> and my son is consecrated. And he also knows how he's called a holiness, but how unholy he's not. I should say how unholy he is, you know. Yeah. And, uh, We're praying he, for him. That's, thank you. That's amazing. Oh. Um so any, uh, anything to look out for? Uh, you've got to New Year's resolutions and we're closing out the year 2022 and uh, things in the pipeline in the future. Well, first of all, we have construction underway. We've got a building yeah, that should be complete at this time next year. And to drive by it every day on my way to work at Franciscan University is truly inspiring. But also it's like, okay, like holiness, this is not a sprint. It's a marathon. Yeah. Uh, but it will take one year, whereas this takes a lifetime. The other thing, too, that I should mention is that uh, beginning in Lent, at the very beginning of Lent, we're going to have free live streaming of a series, much like Parousia, the Bible and the Mass, only this is, holy is his name, the transforming power of God's holiness in Scripture. So I'm going to have 12 episodes that are going to be they're in production right now, and it's just looking wonderful. And they're going to be streamed live for free during Lent. And so go to stpaulcenter.com and you're going to find out how to sign up for that in advance. And then you can also buy a workbook and get materials to make this, you know, a family study, a neighborhood Bible study, a parish study, or anything else that you want. And so we've continued to grow. Uh, next month, we're going to have our new priest retreat in Napa, California, with over 200 priests for almost a week where we really study scripture from the heart of the church, the old and the new. So I would also say, thirdly, besides the construction, besides that Lenten video live stream, please pray for our three priest conferences that are scheduled throughout 2023. We had between six and 700 priests participate in those this year. And the effect has just been amazing. You were there for the, right. the last yes, day or West so. Virginia. West Virginia, yeah. And so it's just like the thickest slice of heaven that we have on earth here at the St. Paul Center. So we could really use your prayers. And we've had priests from Australia come before. And so if anybody wants to sponsor their pastor priest, please feel free. We've got one in Napa, California coming up in January. It's almost full. We've got one in Austin, Texas at Lakeway Resort uh, right after uh, Divine Mercy Sunday in Austin, Texas. And then 
In the second half of uh, July, we have one in uh, Ogle Bay Resort in West Virginia once again. And this, to me, is sort of like the flagship of the whole fleet of what we're doing here at the St. Paul Center. But again, please just check out the website, stpaulcenter.com, and you'll see resources for all kinds of people, beginner, you know, intermediate, advanced, and uh, clergy and laity. Uh, it just, it's such a joy to be with you, Charbel. Thanks yeah. for your hospitality, but also thanks for this partnership. You know, Perusia and the St. Paul Center, you know, I just feel like we're joined at the heart and the opportunities for our collaboration, I think, are only going to increase in the future. I totally agree. My pleasure. Thank you. And uh, we are out of time. I want to invite everyone. Holy is his name. It's available right now. Uh, go to the St. Paul Center if, uh, around the world. But if you're in Australia, New Zealand, visit perusiamedia.com. Finally available. Um, and then the Perusia study, the videos are now live. So please check that out. Um, we have them now at perusiamedia.com. May I ask just to close out with some prayer, Dr. Hahn, if you might, don't mind. I'd be honored to. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Almighty God, our Father in heaven, we thank you for the gift of Jesus Christ, the Holy One. We thank you, O God, for his life, death, and resurrection, for this Advent season of preparation and hope. We ask you in his name for the gift of the Holy Spirit to make us truly holy in body and soul, in our marriages and our families, in our parishes and in our cities. Lord, we as Catholics have grown so accustomed to so many beliefs concerning transubstantiation, holy orders, and apostolic succession, and all of these other sacred mysteries. Lord, please help us to not, to not forget how precious, how beautiful, how powerful they are, that they would soak into our very hearts and transform our lives. We ask all of these things in the holy and powerful name of Jesus, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much. Thank you, everyone. That's another Perusia podcast. Um, please don't forget to subscribe and visit our website, perusiamedia.com, and support St. Paul Center as well. Go to stpaulcenter.com. Thank you, Dr. Han. You're so welcome. What a joy. Keep up the great work, dear brother. Thank you so much. You, we're praying for you. Pray for us. And we're praying for everyone viewing. God bless you. That's another Perusia podcast. Take care and God bless you.